Well, you may have noticed the demolition at the old truck stop on, on Broadway. Has anyone seen what's going on down there? It's kind of by the intersection of Henderson and Broadway on, on 101. It's, it used to be this really old, gross truck stop that's been vacant for many years and now is being demolished, it's being torn down. Does anyone know why they're taking down that old building? Why? In and out burger. In and out burger. Life from death. In and out burger. <laughs> what was an old truck stop will now be an in and out burger. I, I really, I still can't believe that we're getting an in and out burger. Um, and, and if you've been following along, this, is, this has been a lengthy process. There's been rumors about in and out coming. And, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I have focused on this uh, and you know, I'm Googling stuff and trying to find out information. When are we going to get in and out? But that it has been a long process, a lot of rumors. When is in and out coming? Um, you know, and, and I think if you look at the, the process that's happened, we can ask, well, what happens when an in and out burger comes to town? So there's, there has to be traffic studies. Uh, they have to put a new signal in uh, because there's going to be a lot of people who want to go there. So they have to put a new traffic signal in and they had to demolish the disgusting truck stop that had to go away. Uh, there's environmental reports, there's building permits, there's, you have to get the lease with the developer to make sure that it all works and figure out who else is gonna be in the development. There's all kinds of details that happen. It's not just one person decides, I'm gonna put an In-N-Out burger here and it will be great. So in order for us to have these delicious double-doubles, there has to be a lot of things that happen, a lot of, a lot of steps in the process. And, and we can also say that, that when In-N-Out comes, there will be an effect, right, on, on Eureka and on Humboldt County. There'll be uh, some new jobs that are created, and there will be tax revenue. Um, there will be traffic, right? There's going to be more people on Broadway, and I don't know if, if Broadway can handle that right now, but we'll see what happens. Uh, there could be an increase in like the, the average body weight in Humboldt County because of In-N-Out Burger. Um, there's going to be effects that occur once it is here. And, and if you think about it, In-N-Out is one fast food restaurant. And, and yet some of us knew why before it's even here. We knew that it was coming uh, and, and we're talking about it. And this is what happens when and in and out comes to town, or if it was a Trader Joe's, please, Lord Jesus. Uh, if, a, if a Trader Joe's would come, you would have the same kind of discussion. And, and I want to take that idea and that what we're, t- what we're talking about here and, and apply it to the passage that we're looking at in, in Acts chapter 19. We're, we're coming back to find the Apostle Paul. He's in the city in Ephesus. And, and I want us to ask a similar kind of a question. Uh, what happens when Jesus comes to town? We know we, we're, we're talking about what happens when an In-N-Out burger comes to town, but what happens, what happens when Jesus comes to town? If one fast food restaurant can create a lot of excitement and, and maybe uh, angst for other people, you know, it's creating discussion and energy. If, if one fast food restaurant can do that, what happens when the living Savior, through his living church, comes into a town, into an area. So we're going to consider five answers 
to that question, what happens when Jesus comes to town? The first is that churches are established. Second, that power is displayed. Third, that there is confession and repentance. Fourth, that idols are confronted. And finally, that an invitation is given. So let's read Acts chapter 19. We're going to read verses 8 through the end of the chapter, Acts 19, beginning at verse 8, through the end of the chapter. It'll be up on the screen, and it's also in your Bibles on pages 928, 929, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. And, and he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pastor Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought together these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask now that you would pierce to the, to the deepest parts of us with your word, which is living and active even now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal your will to us, that you would reveal our sin to us. And most of all, we ask that you would reveal Jesus to us today. We need Jesus. Each one of us needs Jesus today. We have areas in our life where we have tried to serve two masters, where we have made an idol, where we're just not worshiping you as we ought and living as we ought. And so we ask today, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and you would show us the way to walk and to live and that we would see and hear and believe in the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What happens when Jesus comes to town? First, churches are established We remember back in chapter 18, the first time Paul visited the city of Ephesus, it was for just a brief time, he went into the synagogue and he spoke with the the people there and and they said, we want to hear more from you. And he said, I have to leave, I have to go back to Jerusalem and to Antioch, but I I will try to come again. And so Paul makes good on his word. He returns to Ephesus, to the synagogue there, and he spends three months Uh, week after week, in the synagogue, in the Jewish place of worship, preaching and teaching about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that God promised in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises, and you need to see him for who he is. You need to see him as the culmination of God's story and give him the honor and the worship that he is due, that he is the king of God's kingdom. Now, this is, this is most likely the longest period of time that Paul spends in any of the synagogues that he goes into. We, we know every time Paul goes to a new city, he always starts in the Jewish place of worship. He starts with the, the highest, or I guess it would be the lowest common denominator, right? The most people who would know what he is talking about, who have an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but, but eventually, 
here in Ephesus, even though he gets to be there for three months, the same thing happens that has happened in each city. There's an opposition to the message of Jesus. Some people there uh, begin to speak evil of Jesus, to slander him, and to slander Paul, and they basically kick Paul out of the synagogue. And so Paul does what he has done each time before. He takes those who have believed in Jesus, and he establishes a Christian community. He establishes a church. So we can assume that these new believers, these new Christians, they are meeting together probably in their homes, uh, just like we've seen throughout the book of Acts. But, but they've also set up a meeting hall uh, or a, a, a public space where people can come together and learn about Jesus in this meeting hall of a man named Tyrannus. Uh, it means tyrant, so I think he's probably the worst landlord ever. Um, and, and for two years, two years, day in and day out, Paul works in the morning and the evening as a tent maker to support himself, but in the middle of the day when it's hot, And when everybody else takes their time off work and goes and takes a nap or whatever, Paul goes into this meeting place and teaches and preaches about Jesus where people can come together and learn about who is this Jesus? Who is this man that Paul is teaching us about? So verse 10, uh, Paul, we see that that along the way, as Paul and this this church has been established here in Ephesus, that uh, verse 10 says that, more churches have been planted throughout this two-year period. They've been established all around the region of Asia, so we can reasonably guess that, that as people come to Ephesus, they learn about Jesus, they're sent out into these other places, these other towns, these other regions to plant more churches and, and this is, uh, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, this is likely the time uh, that the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are established. So those are real churches in real cities with real people that those letters were written to. A lot occurred that um, Paul wrote his letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians during this time period. He wrote the letter to the Galatians, most likely, during this time period. So an incredible amount of ministries happening. Churches are being planted and churches are being established. And, and this is what happens when Jesus comes to town. He builds a community. He establishes his church. And we need to, to know this is more than about just an organizational structure. This is God's plan for the world. Jesus said, go and make disciples, right? Teach them, instruct them, baptize them in the way of Jesus. So we obey Jesus' call to make disciples by planting churches, by establishing and strengthening those churches, and then sending more people out to plant more churches. And and that's why I love that we're part of the Acts 29 network. We're part of another network called the Next Generation uh, Churches Network because through them, in our connection with them, we're part of planting churches all around the western part of the United States um, and, and by extension, part of planting churches around the world. In in April, we, we sent $250 to a... Uh, uh, to a church in Malawi so that a pastor could go to a conference to learn how to plant churches, to plant more churches. And that's something that we can do as a church to say we can, we can do that so that 
so that a man halfway around the world can learn how to plant more churches. So we are, by extension, by what we did, planting a seed so that somebody can go out and plant more churches. We're, uh, we're helping financially support 11 churches through Acts 29 West this year. And, and last year, we showed a lot of videos that, that these are the churches that we're supporting, and we're going to start doing that again next week so that you can meet those churches and see the ministry that they're doing in San Diego and Nevada and Colorado and all around the western part of the United States. Why, why do we do this? Why do we help you know, why do we give money to other churches? I mean, we could probably use that money ourselves, right? But why do we give it to other churches? Because this is what Jesus does when he comes to town. He plants churches. He establishes churches in every place that he goes. Now, next we see that when Jesus comes to town, true power is displayed. So, the gospel of Jesus is being declared, right? Preaching and instruction, the, the message of Jesus is being declared. Churches are being established, but, but the message of Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus is also being displayed or put on display through the actions of the followers of Jesus. And that's what happens in the city of Ephesus through what Luke, who's the author of Acts, he calls extraordinary Miracles in verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, now what happens is not ordinary. Luke is, is careful to say these are extraordinary things. This is not normal, uh, but, but it, it is happening. What's going on here? So Paul, he's working each day, and he's wearing a headband, uh, and he's wearing an apron because he's sweating all the time because he's making a tent. He's probably working with animal skins, and it's hot and itchy, just not a pleasant environment. And so he's wearing just the people of that trade would wear uh, things that they could wipe the sweat off of themselves with. And people were taking these items and bringing them to sick and oppressed people. And when these people would touch them, they would be healed. They would be delivered from the spirits that were oppressing them. Now, in a city like Ephesus, I mean, to me, that sounds disgusting. Not interested. Like, I didn't bring my running clothes down here from yesterday and be like, does anyone want to get healed? It's like, I think it would have the opposite effect. Um, but, but in a city like Ephesus, that, this city was, is steeped in, in magic and the occult. This is super exciting. Like, this isn't weird to people because there's, there's items like this all around the city, magical items, uh, spiritually powerful items, items that can protect you, items that you can use to, uh, to curse other people with. These, these are normal things. So, so they're excited because game recognizes game, right? Like, this is powerful. Uh, and since this power is connected to Jesus, some traveling magi uh, Jewish magicians, they begin to use Jesus' name uh, to, to, in order to give themselves spiritual power and authority. They see what's happening with Paul, and they're like, we want some of that. We want some of that power. And so the seven sons of Sceva, which is an amazing name for a band if you're looking for one. Um, I actually, this is, I couldn't help but say this. When I was in high school, I went to a concert in Fresno, California. Shout out, Fresno. Uh, and saw a band called Black Eyed Sceva. So, um, yeah. Look them up on the internet. 
So these guys, these seven sons, they try to find out, uh, they try to, to use this power of the name of Jesus, and they find out that Jesus isn't like these other things that they're familiar with. He's not a, a magical object or a talisman or, or an incantation that can be used in order to perform human will. So they try to cast out a spirit using the name of Jesus. And Luke says in verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now what's happening here? Other than a really funny story about seven brothers who literally get the pants beat off of them. Uh, I, there's one pastor named Matt Chandler in a sermon about this. He said, if you were wearing pants when you went into the fight and you're not wearing pants when you leave the fight, it went really, really bad for you. And that is true. They are, they are utterly humiliated. But we're, what we're really meant to see here is the true power of the gospel of Jesus. When, when Jesus comes to town, he displays his power in a way that will draw attention to him, not to the people that he uses to perform the miracle. So he works through us absolutely to do miraculous things. He displays his power through us. David Peterson, he says, God healed people in this way, graciously accommodating to human beliefs and expectations, so specifically for the people of Ephesus to see this, to encourage them to draw near and discover what his messenger was proclaiming to them. The purpose, this is the purpose of God's display of power, to draw people to Jesus, to hear the message of Jesus, to, to verify the message of Jesus. And this is what Luke says happens in verse 17. This became known. The true power displayed through Paul and the false power that was tried to be used by the sons of Sceva. These things became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And what happened? People were started buying handkerchiefs from Paul? No. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, was exalted, was lifted up, was recognized for who he really was. If, if Jesus isn't getting the credit and a person or a movement is, that is not the power of God. That's not the power of the gospel. That's that's human manipulation. That's a perversion of, of the gospel. This, this passage is a warning to, to us, I think, that, that when we use the name of Jesus or take on the identity of Jesus without walking and living in the presence of Jesus, like what does the evil spirit say? Jesus I know and Paul I recognize because he's been with Jesus. He is... Jesus is with Paul, and so I recognize Paul. But when we try to use the name of Jesus or take on the identity of a follower of Jesus without living in the presence of Jesus, that's a dangerous place for us to be. We're deceiving ourselves, and we're opening ourselves up for, uh, for getting our pants beat off us, for one thing, but other things as well. And I think that's also a reason for us 
to draw near to God, to abide in Jesus, to live holy lives, to pray boldly. Jesus, I want you to use me to display your power, not so that I am recognized, not so that people are impressed with me, but so that more people know who you are, so that the the things that I'm saying could be uh, proved through the power that you display in my life through me so that they see you. When Jesus comes to town, the message of Jesus, the gospel, it's declared Churches are planted, established, and true power is displayed. Now, we see next that uh, there's also confession and repentance when Jesus comes to town. Look what happens in the lives uh, of these new followers of Jesus. Verse 18, many of those who are now believers, they've, they've come to faith in Jesus, they came and they confessed and divulged their practices Uh, meaning their magic and occultic practices. And a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now again, the city and the people of Ephesus, they were deeply spiritual, and many of those who had begun to follow Jesus... um, they, they had a life or they had a career that was rooted in spiritual practices that involved magic and astrology and, and all kinds of occultic worship practices. But, but now they've begun this new life in Jesus and they recognize, they recognize that for, uh, for Jesus to be their king, to have authority in their lives, they must give their allegiance completely and totally to Jesus. And Jesus himself said it, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. And they understand this. They, they understand this intuitively. And so to demonstrate their allegiance to Jesus, to confirm their new identity, they make a break from their old life. They come together and they confess their old ways. This uh, a lot of the, it says when they confessed and divulged their practices, it wasn't just like they were saying these are the things that we did, but, but some of the magic arts, they were secrets that you kept that, that, would, that would be the power of them that only you knew the secret of that, that magical incantation or whatever, but by bringing them out into the open, they were breaking and removing the power of those things. So they, they confess those things They spill their secrets. They burn all the books and the scrolls and the magical items. And and we look at book burning as primarily like a negative thing, right? Like if people are burning books, it's like fascism is involved or something and and not a good thing. And people have used this uh, for the wrong reason. But, But what we're seeing here is that this moving on into this new life, it was, it was a costly thing. It was, a piece of silver was a day's wage. 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 days wages. If you, if you just take today's numbers, 50,000 times $15 an hour for an eight-hour day, that pile of stuff in today's money, $6 million dollars. Like that is 
That is no joke. They didn't sell their stuff on eBay. They didn't get on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or whatever and be like, well, at least I can clear half of this or something. They said, Jesus, you are better. You are worthy. You are enough. You are our king. And these things are worthless now. Six million dollars worth of stuff worthless to them because of Jesus, and they walked away completely and totally from their old way of life. Following Jesus is costly. When, when he comes to town, when he comes into your life, he demands complete allegiance. It's Christ alone or not Christ at all. And I think what we try to do, what many of you are trying to do, is to blend your old life together with your new life, and it just it doesn't work. No one can serve two masters. It doesn't work. Jesus wants everything from you. But the, the beautiful thing is that he gives you everything. He gives you everything and more. He doesn't just ask for you to declare bankruptcy and, and walk into this, you know, come away with nothing. He gives you a new life. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a new family, a new everything. And so we can repent. We can completely turn away from our old life. We can, we can burn all the things. Don't literally burn things, probably. I mean, if you need to, do it in a safe place. Uh, don't tell me about it. Uh, but, but, but he gives you the freedom and the safety and the security to say, I can walk away, even at great cost, from all these things into this new life because he's given me everything I need. He's he's more than enough. He is better than all those things that were important and valuable to me before. When Jesus comes to town, his message is proclaimed. His churches, churches are established. The true power is displayed. We can confess and repent in freedom. And next we see that idols are confronted when Jesus comes to town. So throughout the book of Acts, we've seen... That when, when Paul usually or other missionaries, when they come into a new city, when the message of Jesus is proclaimed, people in that city rightly perceive it as a threat. Uh, so what kind of a threat? Uh, it's, not, it's not a threat of violence, right? Like Paul's not walking into town uh, with an arsenal. He doesn't have a, you know, a stash of weapons somewhere. Uh, it's not primarily a threat of colonization, uh, though that has happened uh, in the history of Christianity. It's not the threats of those kinds of things. That the, the, the gospel of Jesus is a threat to the way that things have been done and the values that have shaped people and the culture of a particular place. Uh, so every place the gospel goes, it doesn't matter what kind of a city is, uh, whether that's a, a, a developing country or a really rich country or something like that, every place the gospel goes, it's going to confront the idols of that place and of the people who live there. So what is an idol? You know, we're, we're looking at Ephesus and there's literally like these guys who make little statues of the goddess and stuff like that, little, little shrines. Um, and so we think, well, we don't have those idols, but 
we need to remember an idol is anything that isn't God but is taking the place of God in your life. It's the thing that brings you hope. And, and, and most of you are probably thinking, well, I'm fine. I believe in God. I don't hope in anything else. My hope is built on nothing less. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think just with all due respect to your position there, I think you need to consider this a little more deeply. Take a minute and, and listen. Here's a quote from Tim Keller, who's uh, a pastor who does a lot of good work on, on defining idolatry in America. He says, you may believe in God, You may believe the Bible, you may believe in Christian teaching, you may go to church all the time, but if there's anything more than God that is functionally more important to your happiness, your identity, your hope, and your meaning, that thing is functionally your God. Now, do you see what he's saying here? An idol is something that is functionally acting in the place of God. That thing has become your God or your idol. And when Jesus comes to town, when he comes into your life, those idols are going to be confronted. They're going to be identified and confronted. This is, this is an either-or situation. Again, no one can serve two masters. No one can worship two gods, because one is always going to take the place of ultimate allegiance. But, but we can also see here in Ephesus that this isn't just about personal transformation. It's not just about what's happening in, in an individual person's life. Uh, the gospel of Jesus also confronts the idol of our culture, the things that our culture and our society and maybe our national identity uh, worships and values, and Jesus confronts those as well, and so that's what the people of Ephesus they perceive, and, and that's what Luke spends the rest of chapter 19 talking about. And, and the short version goes like this: This man Demetrius, uh, he makes these religious shrines to the goddess of Artemis, who is like the you know a significant uh, deity within uh, this region, but specifically to Ephesus because of this sacred stone that came down. And there's a whole big story about it. Um, but, but Demetrius, he, see, he sees that uh, it's bad for business when Jesus comes to town. <laughs> it's bad for his business uh, be, because of what Paul is preaching. Part of the gospel message that Paul is proclaiming is basically saying, if you make your own gods with your hands, they're not gods. They're not they're not gods. And, and many people are buying into this. They're believing that, oh, yeah. I would like to worship a God that I didn't carve myself or go buy from the store. Like, I want to worship a God, a real God. Two things are happening here. This is bad for business. Uh, he says, this trade of ours is being threatened, the way we make our living. And the second thing is the thing, Demetrius says, the thing that we worship, the, the thing that gives us our identity, our 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 place, our status, our value, our hope, our meaning as a city. That thing is being pushed off its throne. And Demetrius, he breaks it down, and the people of Ephesus, they see what's happening. This is what happens when Jesus comes to town, and they are enraged. They are enraged. A riot breaks out. Christians are grabbed and drugged into uh, the theater. There's just total chaos going on. Um, 
But what else is happening here? I think it's tempting to look at this as just economic, which makes sense. Uh, but, but there's more than just an economic fear that's happening here. The idol that's being confronted, it's, it's a worship issue. It's a heart issue. Verse 34, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's worship, right? Like if, if we came next week, and I'm going to be gone next week, so you guys can do this if you want. But if we just said, great is Jesus the Christ, over and over again for two hours. I mean, I would be exhausted, uh, but, but that's worship, right? Declaring the value and the meaning and the significance of something. The idol of Ephesus has been confronted by the gospel of Jesus, and there's this deep fear that they will lose what they have. If you take away something good, something I like, I will be upset, I will be sad, I will be, um, I will be angry. But if you take away something that is the most important thing in my life, I will fight for it. I'm going to lose control. I don't care about anything but protecting that thing that is most important to me. And the same is true here for the Ephesians. Their, their rage and their panic, it's all fueled by a fear that what is ultimate to them is going to be knocked off the throne. So if we want to effectively reach the people that are our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, with the message of Jesus here in Eureka, here in Humboldt County, part of what we have to do is identi identify and confront idols. It's part of our, part of our work, and, and what we have to do first is identify and confront idols in our own lives. We need to take the log out of our own eye before we point out the speck in someone else's eye. So just ask yourself, what is my hope built on? If it's nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then you have an idol. You have an idol that needs to be toppled over. And as you identify those things, that you, you can begin to help other people see the idols that exist in their lives as well. And, and so I think this will be a good topic for us in our gospel community this week when we're, uh, when we're around the table that we can, uh, that we can ask some questions uh, of each other. What are the idols? And, and, and we'll spend some time doing that. Confrontation of idols is not easy, right? It causes a riot here. Um, but it's, it's what happens when Jesus comes to town. Now when, just to sum everything up, when Jesus comes to town, we've seen the, the message of Jesus is proclaimed. Uh, churches are planted and established. True power is displayed. There is confession. There is repentance, uh, which we would say that's personal transformation. And there is a confrontation of, item, uh, of idols confrontation of idols that's personal and uh, cultural, right? It's, it's kind of the social uh, idols as well. So finally, we see when Jesus comes to town, an invitation is given. Now, how does this happen? Uh, when Jesus comes to town, he makes an invitation through us, through you and I, through, through those of us who follow Jesus. Uh, as, as people who follow Jesus, he is inviting people, other people, to come into his family through us. He's making an invitation through us. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, to you and I, the message of reconciliation. Because all this is true, therefore, we are ambassadors. You and I are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. God extending his invitation through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've looked at all the things that happen when Jesus comes to town Churches are planted, power is displayed, the gospels uh, declared, spoken, demonstrated. Uh, Old lives are turned away from and new lives are moved into. Uh, Idols are confronted. Uh, but, But we really need to recognize that all of those things happen through us. Jesus is not bodily, physically present in the world anymore, but we are. And we're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. And it's our privilege, it's our responsibility to do these things. We're the ones who are planting churches. Uh, God is demonstrating his power through us. We are the ones who are confessing and repenting, uh, and we are the ones who are confronting idols as well. And we don't do this in our own strength. Of course, we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is extending his invitation through us. Jesus is extending his invitation to Eureka, through us. That's how this is happening. We're his representatives. So let's, let's live this life together. Let's declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus in our lives. Let's, let's find freedom together in this new life that he has won for us. Let's be brave and confront the idols in our own hearts and our own lives in, in the idols that exist in our community. And let's be a living invitation to those who don't know Jesus, who don't know who he is and what he has done for them. We saw this in Acts 18, right? Jesus has many people who are in this city and they don't know that yet. And it's our calling to say, here's, here's who Jesus is, this is what he's done Join him. He's inviting you in to this life. Let's pray. Father, there's, there's much hard work that we could be doing as a result of what you're teaching us here, and I pray that you would help us. Um, you just help us to be honest, uh, to have the courage to, uh, to call out the idols that exist in our own lives. Some of it, we just, sometimes we don't even know. We're so blind. And I pray that if that's the case, that you uh, would send a brother or sister in Christ uh, who would love us enough to help us identify that idol in our lives and turn away from it. I pray that for those of us who are conscious of it, we know it, that you would help us to stop trying to serve two masters and follow you alone, Lord Jesus. And ultimately, we pray, Father, that you would help us to declare and display the good news of Jesus 
um, that we could be a place where our town around us could say, Jesus has come to town, and I can see that through the lives of these people. So for, all, for us as a church, for all the churches in Eureka and Humboldt County, help us to be ministers of reconciliation, agents of reconciliation, extending your gracious invitation to our community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.